So today I am in Melksham to meet the artist Guy Bigland. Hello Guy. Hello Robert, nice to see you. And uh, we are in your studio and surrounded by examples of your work. And the reason that I was particularly keen to have a chat with you is that a lot of your work is around, as I understand it, systems and text and language and structures. And I'd love to know more about it. So could you maybe start by saying a little bit about how how you might describe your work to one of my uh, listeners? Well, as you say, a lot of my work involves language um, and text, but then a lot of my work doesn't have any of that in it. My painting is generally just very basic shapes and colours, but the common thread between that and the text-based work is that it's generally all constructed around systems of constraints which limit what can be done within that piece of work. And also sometimes the content comes from other kind of quite common everyday systematic structures. For example, um, easiest for me to talk probably about the latest thing that I've made, which is a printed work called All the Time in the World, which is printed in a newspaper format, like a broadsheet newspaper. And it basically lists every second of the day from start to finish. And we're all very familiar with the way that we write down the time is normally represented on certainly on digital clocks as two digits representing the hour, two digits representing the minute and two digits representing the second, all divided by colons. And that's a system called International Standard ISO 8610, I think it is. So that's a system that's a very everyday thing. We don't really think about it. But I just wanted to see every possible second of the day written down. And I wondered what that would look like. So I did that and then worked out how that could be fitted into a printed format which is kind of ridiculous because nobody needs to see every second of the day written out. But in my mind, there's this system that generates all those possible times and surely there should be some kind of analogue master copy of this all written down. So I created that and then when it came to putting it into a, a printed format so you can present it to somebody, I thought about a while about what kind of book will it be or will it be a big print or uh, written directly onto a wall. And then I realised, of course, that a, a publication that has a connection with the idea of one day is a, a daily newspaper. So then I found a printer who could print it in that format. So that's one example of the, just kind of latching onto some existing structure that's a very everyday, ubiquitous thing. I mean, I didn't realise that it was called ISO 8610, and, you know, of course, at some point that was decided this will be the format by which we write down time and, and divide up a day. And it's called all the time in the world, because obviously every second that will ever be for the rest of time will be measured in that way. So it's one day, but it's also all the time in the world.
What a great example to start us with because it exemplifies your interest as I understand it with things like systems and making them apparent what's what's implicit to become explicit. But what I also like about your work is the way the care with which you give to the presentational side of it and making it fit in with the overall thoughts and concepts behind it always seem to be very well thought through and, and, a, and a lovely part of the care that you put into your work. Yeah, I mean, sometimes ideas sit on the shelf for quite a while because the final form that I want them to take, it just doesn't seem to quite fit conceptually. Um, other times I will make them and then have to remake them later because I suddenly realised there was something missing a bit from the final form that it took. But that really is that, you know when it's just kind of fitting well. Um... I recognise that definitely because when I did my a Dictionary of Art, mm. I collected all of these uh, dictionary definitions from online and I had them for probably two or three years before... Yeah the penny dropped as to how to what to do with them and 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 I'd actually tried them out as as a like a powerpoint presentation before and 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 in different ways and then suddenly re- I realized ah oh, it has to be a dictionary but yeah. until you get to that point yes. you don't feel as though you know what to do with it yes yeah yeah that's right and so I have to ask you where does this interest in systems and ordering and reordering and playing with them where, where would you say that comes from what's what's is, is there something behind it or is that something that's always been with uh, you mm, it's I was collecting a lot of things when when I was a student an undergraduate early 90s I was collecting things then and the main thing that I really collected a lot of was shopping lists and my Saturday job when I was a student was working in the local Sainsbury's, often being given the job of collecting trolleys, and people leave their shopping lists behind in trolleys. You know, I was working with words and language, and people were just leaving language behind in their trolleys, and I was picking it up, and then going home at the end of the day with my pockets stuffed of uh, strangers' shopping lists. I just found them very interesting, because I was particularly interested within language of mark-making, but of mark-making that was not consciously meant to be aesthetic that hadn't been done to look nice and certainly was not intended to be seen as art wasn't even intended to be seen by anybody apart from the person that wrote it and I was also very interested in the idea of the public and the private the personal and the general and the shopping list suddenly seemed to be this thing that suddenly crossed the line from being a very personal thing that somebody would not show to someone else to then being instantly discarded as soon as it's been used. So that was my that was a big collection I made, and I probably collected about five or six hundred during my time as a student, and and I've carried on collecting them. So I've got hundreds, thousands now. I, I think you know that was the first thing I really remember remember properly collecting, but it just seemed to be quite fruitful and uh, a rich thing to tap into. And so, yeah, I've just always approached my work in that way of just kind of, if something intrigues me, if it can be collected, you know, obviously the lists are collecting physical objects, but obviously you can just collect words. You can just write things down and let them build up. And once they've piled up, they might suggest a use in your work. But then what also um, intrigues me is that things like your collections of four-letter words and the shopping lists... They can seem 
at first sight, certainly to somebody who might not be tuned into these types of ways of working as quite either banal or quite straightforward or impenetrable, maybe difficult to get a handle on, but you talk very eloquently about them. How do you think of that relationship between what you present and then how much you then articulate about it and how much you leave for people to to take or leave, as it were, from it? Because it's quite out there to present a book of four-letter words, but then just leave it there for people to make what they will of it. That's always a thing that you wonder how far to go, how much help to give. I, I do sometimes in the title of my works try to give people a, a key, but I also like the thing to look quite puzzling as well. The four-letter word book is, the, the full title which is on the front of the book is all the four-letter words that are sometimes used with another four-letter word, and then in brackets, that I can think of. So that's kind of immediately the that I can think of bit on the end is meant to make suggest that, you know, that this looks like very dry, but then there's also this kind of self-undermining of the whole idea of this being an exhaustive thing. So hopefully, see, that there's some humour in it and that there's a way into it that will be humorous. I was quite pleased when somebody looked at some of the work when I was showing at an artist book fair and said that the the work is quite generous, which was a really nice term to use. And I never really thought of that term for my work. But just saying you just leave so much space for the viewer to unpack what's going on and explore. And it's particularly, you know, like with a piece like All the Paintings in the Museum, which just lists all the titles of the paintings, sort of one and a half thousand paintings in the Fitzwilliam collection. Yeah, so I, I hope that would be lovely if people see it as generous with space to move around. And I kind of like to think that that the work, when it succeeds, it's giving people something that they can use, or ideas or ways of looking that they will take away and use in their own life. Well, I, I would say actually, uh, first of all, that I, I agree. I do think your work does have that humour and generosity to it, which I think is a lovely part of it. I've got a copy of your book, Everyday Solutions, which is a great example for me of, of playfulness, but, all, but also I'm laughing about it now. I, maybe you'd be better off describing than I, but, but it's a beautifully presented book called Everyday Solutions by Guy Bigland. On an, and on every page, there is just one exhortation to do something lose weight while watching TV, prevent blocked drains and nasty smells, quickly defrost your freezer or fridge. All of, the, all of these statements are kind of at the banal end of the spectrum, mm. but I think they've all come from adverts. Yeah, I mean, I haven't written a word of that book. It was from a brochure, a, you know, like a little magazine that you get that falls out of the Sunday newspaper, and it was a catalogue of devices for the home, particularly aimed at older people. And every product underneath its actual name had this little strap line, which was telling you how it would improve your life. And, you know, I was just looking through it and just became fascinated by by these quite poetic and banal, simultaneously poetic, banal and, and amusing things. And I, I just wrote them all down and put them each one onto a page of a book. 
you know, that, that's an example of one of my approaches to making work, which is just taking language from one context and putting it into another context and not doing anything to it at all because everything you need is there. But it is very interesting what a role context plays, you know, in the meaning of something. And it's very kind of you to say it was very nicely produced. And I think it's important to do that, to produce it as nicely as you can. It kind of gives it a certain authority and it it does alter the meaning if you feel that you're looking at a book that's delivering you something serious or poetic or whatever it might be. It is beautifully presented, but also the fact that you've put so much care into the paper and the layout and the lovely curved corners to it, that comes across and it makes the viewer think, oh, somebody's actually seriously put time and effort into this, therefore Mm. they're inviting me to do the same Mm. and and to kind of consider it in those lights. Remove even old stains effortlessly. Mm. So, yeah. Even old ones. Even old ones, yeah. I'll I'll bear that in mind. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going back to systems and the idea of, of generating or working with systems. How, I was going to ask you how good you are at sticking to your own systems once you've set it up because I find it very difficult I might might sometimes have a system and then I might sneakily or maybe not even so sneakily not be able to stick to it and I'm impressed that the rigor that you're able to bring to your work Mm. I mean sometimes you know you might be tempted to break your own system if you feel that in some way it's flawed once you get into actually using it or that maybe it's like not going to generate enough variety within the piece or you think actually what this is going to make I'm not even going to want to look at it is this system actually worth following so I think sometimes you do have to go back and slightly rethink a system if it's just not really going to be interesting at the end but it's a matter of crafting the idea well in the first place and a sort of a mantra really that I do follow was from one of Sol LeWitt's sentences on conceptual art, which was that irrational thoughts should be followed absolutely and logically. And I have that written on the wall um, in my studio, and I read it every day. (laughs) And and so if you're going to follow an irrational thought absolutely and logically, you've got to make sure it's a really good irrational thought and that it's going to, you know, there's going to be something coming out of it the other end. But yeah, You've got to stick to your system, yeah. Well, and it's an interesting quote as well, because he talks about irrational thoughts, but of course then irrationality is at the opposite end of the spectrum, potentially, to kind of systems-based approaches or uh, constraints, uh, because irrational implies without logic or without structure, maybe. So it's an interesting starting point. You start from an irrational and move it into the rational, potentially. Mm, yeah, it can seem irrational. Well, sometimes it just seem irrational to make art. What are you making this thing for? You know, compared to the rationality of everyday life, that you do something for a very specific purpose, to earn some money or whatever it is. You know, it's one of the great joys of art, is that you do, can involve yourselves in completely irrational things. But it's then the idea that that doesn't mean that there are no rules. You can have rules and logic within the irrational. Well, one of the things that I was also interested in is that 
a lot of people are quite antithetical to systems or rather a Victorian or a kind of a, a rationalist attempt to categorise everything mm. creates uh, problems down the line because things inherently don't fall nicely into categories as we would like. Mm. And I wonder to what extent that, that sense of, well, going back to the irrational again or the, the impossibility of actually creating a of the perfect system, every system either denies a, an alternative system or, or has its flaws and to what extent your work explores some of the wrinkles in attempting to create a system? I think the wrinkles can be are really interesting. The ways in which setting yourself some rules then it enables things but it makes other things impossible. But it's a bit like, I mean just like language itself as a as a system a set of rules, you know, language obviously has grammar and you obey the rules and then we all agree by consensus what the meaning of words are and, and how to use them. But that's one of the really interesting things that language, it, it enables us to have society and community and to understand each other. But at the same time, it sets the limits of our world. So I think it's Ludwig Wittgenstein who said, the limits of my language is the limits of my world. And what we can't say, we can't comprehend and so that's really fundamentally interesting how that operates and when you look at that we make all of our words you know in the English language out of 26 characters that's quite extraordinary how much can be said with 26 characters in their various arrangements but it's extraordinary how many arrangements of letters are not actually words and so there's this I, I did one piece which was using four letter words but making up words that are not actually words. So it was every possible combination of every possible four-letter word with ooh in the middle and every possible four-letter word with e in the middle, double e. And so when you write them all down and, and they're presented in a book, you just realise how most of them are not actually words. So there's all these other things we could be saying, but we need to ascribe meaning to all these other arrangements of letters. So it's interesting how... The arrangement of letters would allow us to say all kinds of things that we don't say. Yes, isn't that interesting that uh, there are all sorts of things waiting to be said if only we had yeah. the words It's for kind them. of like the idea that there's an awful lot of spare words in the world that just haven't been given any meaning yet. So I'm always interested in that as, as language, as both it enables us to, to be human and without it it's difficult to imagine life, but at the same time it sets its limits on how we can express what words we have for a certain emotion or, you know, everything. Yeah, that's that's constantly a sort of motivating thing for me, for exploring language. Very interesting, yes, because likewise I have a frustration with words. They're the best we've got. You know, we, we can have this conversation, we can get so far and no further, and then we run out of road, as it were, with, with words and yes. that means of expression. And there's always a remainder, it seems, that cannot be said or just doesn't come out or or cannot come out I don't know yeah yeah they seem to be inadequate I yeah. wanted to do a piece once when uh, we were hosting the Olympics and they would stick a, a microphone under the, 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 the gold medal winner you know saying mm. and how do you feel having just won the gold medal and nine times out of ten they would say oh I just can't put it into words I can't you know I can't <laughs> say I don't, I don't I, I'm speechless you yeah, know yeah they're, they're yeah. always saying I have not got the words there are not words to describe what's going yes. on inside my head at the moment yeah and for, I suppose for some artists that's where 
the art comes in, you know, where the road runs out, where language ends, the art begins. Yes, and that's always something that's, that's always interested me with painting, actually. I mean, that's when I was studying painting as an undergraduate, I, I was very interested in, you know, how things acquired their meaning. I'd always been interested in very minimal abstract art, but I was interested in how basic shapes and colours can a meaning be ascribed to them. And any artist and art historians, people who write about art, will have their idea of what particular paintings mean. And to me, it just always seemed that it was never wholly intrinsic to the work. It's to do with, with what's projected onto it not just by the viewer, but by the discourse that surrounds it, by what the artist says about it, by the title that the artist puts next to it, if it's exhibited, and then what the critics and the historians have to say about it. So language is never far away from what art means. And so like you say, there comes a point where sort of words fail us and therefore let's make some pictures. But then language is always intertwined. And that was one of the reasons that I... 30 years ago, as an undergraduate, got into painting about language and abstractions of words and trying to kind of articulate in some way. So I did a lot of paintings of kind of abstract shapes that were derived from stuff to do with information and language or means of communication. So I was painting grids that looked like modernist, random abstractions but they were actually like dots and dashes of Morse code. So I was interested in that duality of complete abstraction and actual words and two different languages present in the same space, visual language and written verbal language. And that actually led me to do my first book, which was the alphabet. And the alphabet for me is always somewhere to go, a good starting point to play around because it's a given but the the book had five pages, and it was transparent perspex um, acetate, and I'd screen printed the alphabet onto them, but one page was just all of the curves from the alphabet, and the next page was all of the horizontals, next page was all of the uh, verticals, the next page was all of the left-leaning diagonals, and the next page was all of the right-leaning diagonals. So as you turn the pages, it falls apart, and then as you get to the end, it's back together again in reverse. And so that was abstraction and language kind of in one package. And that was the first time I made an artist book. And then later, after a long time of not doing any art, I came back to it. And during that time, suddenly there'd been this big sort of revolution in print-on-demand, online self-publishing. So suddenly it was just really easy to make books. And so that's why it's been big part of my practice ever since. Fantastic. Well, that may be a good point at which to pause and um, have a cup of tea. Okay. Very good. So we are back after, well, cup of, uh, no, not a cup of tea for me, um, glass of water. I had my cup of tea before we started. Glass of water for you. Mm, yeah. And um, more conversation in the meantime about your work. Always interesting. 
and we were looking at some of your paintings. You've got these lovely paintings of four colours, beautifully painted on, is it an aluminium base? Yeah, yeah. I noticed when I was buying paints that all of the different manufacturers of artists' paints uh, ascribe each colour a three-digit code, but that this isn't a, a kind of a standard it's not like British standard numbers or RAL colours like you have in industrial and commercial house paints. But they were just arbitrary designations and each company would have their own numbering system. Uh, so then I realised that, you know, number 781 in a Data Rowney is a completely different colour to 781 made by Old Holland or someone. So I was just interested in that as being a way a way in for me to use these existing opposing colour notations to, to, to place colours together. It's, it gave me permission to put colours together that, from a colour theory point of view or an artistic point of view or just from general good taste view, should not be put together. And it was interesting to me that these are colour decisions that have been made uh, not by me, really, although with using any system, there's that interplay between, obviously, unknowingness on, on my part that I'm exploiting this coincidence, but unknowingly the art paint manufacturers have colluded without their knowledge in these colours going together. So I kind of, yeah, just like the idea of basing an entire system on coincidence. I mean, coincidence just seems to be the the weakest possible kind of reason to do something. So that, like I was saying earlier, you know, solar wits dictum, that's a very irrational thought, but I'm following it absolutely. And it does create a really rather beautiful series as an outcome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of them are quite sort of challenging combinations, but I think they're very stimulating. And one of the things that I'm interested in, I'm wondering, are you a naturally very tidy person is this a kind of in some ways a reflection of the state of your brain is is it a very ordered interior space that you have mental landscape and the one of the reasons I ask that is that sometimes people say to me about my work that it's very ordered very constrained or careful which it is and you know they make the same assumptions and I say to them well you've only got to see the state of my garage to know that you know I'm not a tidy person it's, you know it doesn't necessarily bleed into real life but I'm just wondering with you whether there's a link there maybe, um, or not. no same as you a very untidy garage and terribly untidy mind you know just doing things in a systematic way is is, is a way of just trying to tidy up the chaos from inside isn't it it's, it's I just I suppose that's a different, <laughs> that's a good way of thinking is it is a different it's a way of of making sense or ordering or providing some structure maybe or yeah yeah just trying to have a little bit of a tidy up yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah i have sort of realized that a lot of my time most of my kind of thought processes do seem to be along the lines of putting things in order tidying up and uh, sort of deliberately oversimplifying things just to it, it, it's a very nice way to work because it does yeah it calms you right down so well that kind of leads me on to my next question or, or or rather another area that i was really keen to ask you about which is your enterprise called books about art yeah and 
I've ordered some books from you online. You have a little bookstore, online bookstore, yeah. and you have this most amazing catalogue of art books. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got into that and how that works for you? Just because, yeah. well, also because it seems to me, but maybe I'm projecting onto you, but it seems to me really great that you're, you've got your art practice, but you're also got this little enterprise that seems to be quite a nice synergy, a nice link between mm. the two, maybe. I don't mm. know. Yeah, well, certainly um, books have been part of my own practice, you know, for making books for a while. And I've always been something of a bibliophile, you know, always liked books and uh, as much as I can afford to, bought books. So, yeah, I started working for this business, which wasn't called Books About Art at the time. And at that time, it was based on selling books into education from a kind of a mobile bookshop. And the client's customers were all colleges, independent schools that would spend a lot of money on art books. And so it was uh, driving around the country in in a big van, walk-in bookshop and selling to all the teachers and librarians and, and students in, in um, higher education. And then I was given the business, I kind of inherited it, and then I turned it into an online business and renamed it Books About Art. And it was really only during the pandemic when I could no longer visit education institutions that I turned it online and that was been a really good move and the other particular kind of usp about the business is that it's all the books are heavily discounted generally normally at least half price because they all come from the remainder book market so people might be familiar with the kind of high street discount bookshops and those are basically books that are sourced from the remainder market so there's an amazing array of books that come onto that market across the art and design field, you know, right, you know, in its broadest sense, you know, visual arts and including things like animation and film and TV, fashion, performance. So that's where I source the books that, that I sell. And, and how do you decide which ones to take on? Because, I mean, it must be like being a kid in a sweet shop. For me, I'd, I, I mean, I don't think I have a business brain anyway, but... I'd be so tempted just to buy books that I personally like. I mean, how do you go about it? Yeah, that's always um, always a danger that you might buy just ones that you like. I think because the business, when I first came to it, was selling to education, you were thinking more about the curriculum. You're selling to teachers. So you're thinking about what teachers will buy, what they need to teach. And also at degree level as well. So you're thinking within those categories. You know, I visit a lot of places where they have architecture degrees. So we need a good stock of architecture books. And some of those places will have uh, also kind of landscape architecture, interior design. Uh, and then through into other fields that are, you know, really beyond my expertise, you know, like fashion. But you uh, just sort of gradually learn what people want through that. And, and also trusted publishers, publishers that... Are really good and you know they'll always be making good books so when you're buying uh, sometimes without actually being able to see the books in the flesh or sometimes you are at book fairs but they're quite only a few times a year so you have to buy a lot in one day and you're having to judge a book within about two or three seconds whether or not that's a book to buy because you've got a lot <laughs> a lot of book buying to do that day so yeah you just get used to it and you do buy some stuff sometimes that 
takes a while to sell or stuff turns out you should have bought a lot more but a lot of them I'm buying in from America and Germany so it takes quite a while for them to arrive and yeah you know that you only get a couple of opportunities a year to buy from those people so you've it will all sell yeah you just get quite good at at judging through experience I don't know if it's a stereotype with artists not being good with money or whether whether it's just me, but um, thinking about your own work, and and I know that you do some book fairs and and, uh, you have your own limited edition books and prints and so on. Do you find there's a crossover between the sales hat, as it were, that you have to have on for your business? And then how does that, is there any link between that and, and, and how you go about, you know, approaching your own artworks well i i don't know i don't think there is really i mean i i I tend to be quite fairly non-commercial with selling my art yeah i mean the great thing about being heavily involved in making my own books is that there are uh lots of opportunities to show work like that at artist book fairs in the uk but also internationally so there's always an outlet there is a commercial outlet for that work and and very quickly i've only been doing those since I did my master's about eight years ago. But sort of very quickly during those eight years, since I've been showing at artist book fairs, the work has now got into international collections, public collections, probably about 15 to 20. And so that's really, really great. And for me, one of the really, really key things about making work in the form of the book is that you can make them in multiples, which means you can sell them affordably, people don't have to be rich to buy your work, and collections will quite readily buy them because they're not having to fork out a fortune. So yeah, you know, I am sort of relatively commercial about that. I, I want to sell them at a price that means people will buy them. But I think because I spend most of my time, a lot of my time being commercial and really minded in, my, in, in, in books about art, I don't have to be too worried about making money from the art sure. practice. Although I've sold a lot of my printed work, I've never really sold very many paintings because I've, I've rarely put them for sale. It's, it's strange that because I make paintings which are in series and each one, I view them almost like each one as a kind of a research of what will this look like if I do this. And I really sort of slightly reluctant to part with them uh, when they're completed, particularly to divide up a series into in, sell them as individual units. Because for me, the whole thing is, is is a body of research that I might want to refer back to, which is probably ridiculous. I should be more commercially minded about that. But I... Well, no, no in a way, that, that was what I was kind of alluding to, that I know that there are not, quite a few artists that I know that, that kind of are reluctant to sell for that reason, because actually they're part of this ongoing inquiry that their work is about and they almost need it to feed into the next thing or they're not yet in a position where it can just you know sail off into the world and Mm. and they can say goodbye to it yeah 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 very much that's where I am you mentioned that you've got your work in all of these collections and you've been doing these book fairs I'm I'm intrigued also about the ecology as it were of these book fairs because I've been to a few but not to very many and they seem to have this 
very, I don't know what it was, how you'd characterise it, but it's a very, it seems like a very particular little little network, little world. And how, how has that been for you? And how does, how does that work? And how does it bleed on to maybe getting your work into collections? Because that's a great thing and it's a great way of uh, disseminating your yeah. ideas. Yeah, no, it's a really good thing. It's, it's a real sort of privilege as, as a, an artist and a maker you know, for two days to lay your work out for people to come and look at it and for you to get direct feedback from people, which is really valuable. And you get connections with people. And yeah, it, it's a really great part of my of my practice now to be trying to do as many of those as possible. And I've done most, quite a lot of the ones in the UK, but also started doing them overseas in Germany and Austria and Sweden really and um, and then when you go overseas like that you're then in a whole new community of, of artists who you would never have known about each other's work and, and then you end up getting you know existing relationships there and so then you're you're in collections in Vienna and Munich and Malmo and wherever it may be so that's it's it's a it's a really good kind of networking Thing. And, and and you all swap work with each other. So you come back with just an amazing array of artist work that you didn't even know existed. And yeah, so, so the Artist Book Fair is great. And if anybody has not been to one, do go. And, and the other thing, great thing that happens there is with people seeing your work, as well as collectors buying, is from being at the Small Publishers Fair a few years ago, my work was seen by a choreographer who was just about to start a project at MIT in the architecture school, doing this little project where he would get some architecture students to dance and perform based on George Perec's Species of Spaces. And one of my books that I had on my table that day was called Dancing About Architecture, which uses a, a quotation. Somebody once said that writing about music is like dancing about architecture. Anyway, so, so Richard, who saw this, loved it. And I ended up working with him at MIT on a funded project just because I was showing this book at a book fair one day. So, so you never know what's going to come off the back of these things. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, maybe that is a good point at which to say thank you very much for this conversation. It's been uh, fantastic to catch up with you, see your work and uh, hear about the ideas behind them. Yeah. Thank you, Robert. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Something to Do with Art. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback via social media and check out the podcast notes for links and further information. That's it for this episode. Many thanks to the very wonderful Berwick Livingston for the music, Danielle Blyde for logo design, and to everyone who has taken part and helped me with this project. I hope to catch up with you again soon.